My name is Josh, um, in case you haven't met me. And I am one of the elders here at City Press. I've been an elder for three years now, if you can believe it. I uh, also have the privilege of coming on staff here at City Press. Uh, my technical title is the Interim Director of Congregational Care, the IDCC, the I Don't Care Care. Uh, it's a technical title, but uh, if uh, we basically, if you, if you want to think of it, I'm kind of like an interim pastor, but I'm not an interim pastor. And the reason that I'm not an interim pastor is because technically I can't be. Uh, I haven't gone to seminary. But also because we think it's really important that during this time uh, that we revisit what it looks like to be City Press as a church. Not that we think things are wrong, but that it's an opportunity to revisit the church as Christ's church. It's, it's, it's a hard time. It's going to be a hard season. It already has, and it will be as we look for a pastor. My job is not to be that pastor, although I do fill some of those spaces that a pastor has filled and will fill. But my intention, our intention during this time, is that we can come together, that we can um, revisit what it looks like to be the church of Christ. Christ's church. We don't come here just to be fed, but we come here to serve one another. It's why we, uh, we confess our sins corporately, because we know that our sins affect one another. It's why we worship together. It's why we eat uh, donuts and drink coffee together, because our lives are enmeshed in one another's lives. And this is an opportunity to be enmeshed in one another's lives. It's an opportunity for our stories to become intertwined. It's going to be a hard season. There will be people who move away for various reasons. The Kim's moving away for jobs, and that's going to be hard. We are ascending church, and we will continue to send. We will send in joy, but we also will receive in joy. My friends, it's an opportunity for you to step into the absences. It's also an opportunity for you to share with one another the absences that you see. Share with us the session. We want to hear, we want to know, but it's also an opportunity for you to lean on one another in a way that we may not have, and I encourage you to do that. But in all of this, as Josh Eby, the consultant for the PSC, keeps reminding us, this is a human process and this is a divine process. They are enmeshed in ways that are sometimes inextricable, and this is a divine process. God is in this. He is in this time, he is in this absence, he is in this church, he is in this congregation. God is here with us. And we lean into that, we live into that. So all that to say, I'm the I don't care care. And in that, I uh, have the dubious honor, dubious for you, honor for me, of being up here a little more frequently and presenting uh, the Word of God. Um, but it also means that I get to share the pulpit with some awesome guys like Charlie and Matt and Isaac and David and Dan and others. And uh, it's a joy to be able to think through these passages with these other guys. This morning, we're looking at these uh, 13 verses in 1 John, and next week, we'll finish up this um, series in 1 John. And if you can believe it, we've been in this, pas- we've been in this book for um, over two years now, uh, but we've only been doing it periodically, kind of interspersed throughout the other series that we've been doing. But the last couple weeks, we've had an opportunity to really dive into this book in the last closing chapters and, and see um, these passages through uh, the lens with Charlie and Matt and Isaac. And so we'll finish up the series this week 
uh, sorry, next week. And then after that, we'll have a short series that uh, takes us through Lenten Easter, looking at the life of Peter. Brothers and sisters, how do you know something? How do you know a thing? How do you know that you know? It's a little bit dangerous to ask that question in here with medical doctors and metallurgy doctors and nuclear engineering and aeronautical engineers and astronautical engineers. It's a little dubious for me to ask that. But how do you know? How do you know you know? Do you know why your McDonald's coffee cup says caution, contents hot? Have you heard the story about the lady who bought a cup of coffee at McDonald's and she took it to her car, took a sip, and it was a bit too hot for her, so she went back inside and screamed at the employees and proceeds to sue McDonald's for $3 million? Have you heard that story? Seems a pretty good reason for McDonald's to put caution contents hot on your coffee cup. Story makes a lot of sense. Problem is that almost all of the important details of that story are wrong. Instead of a middle-aged Karen, if you will, uh, the lady was an octogenarian getting coffee with her grandson. Sweet little old lady. The coffee wasn't just surprisingly warm. It was, um, the average temperature at McDonald's at that time was about 180 degrees. Uh, The lady didn't just singe her tongue. She got third-degree burns and required skin grafts on her thighs when she tried to add creamer to her coffee. And she only sued McDonald's when they tried to offer only $800 in compensation for all of her medical bills. And although the original jury award was over close to $3 million, the judge reduced it to $640,000. Now, I remember hearing this litigious Karen side of the story when I was in elementary school, swapping stories with my friends about Ig Nobel Prizes and Darwin Awards. If you're not familiar with those, do look those up. They're hilarious. But what is it about these kinds of stories that captures our attention and intrigues us? I think in part, the humor, um, there's something more believable when we have a positive disposition towards it. There's also parts of these stories that cohere with our story, with our story, and with our understanding of the world. The original story of the McDonald's Cumps makes sense. Why? Because we have a category for Karens, those middle-aged, entitled, snooty people who expect the world to conform to their expectations and will throw a tantrum if not. We believe that America is exceedingly litigious. It's no surprise that if someone would sue over a cup of hot coffee. Because that story fits with the categories that we have already established, there is a coherence to our worldview. Why wouldn't we believe this story? Is there a problem? In that, that we are so primed to believe a story, especially one that has a few touch points with things that we already believe or know. I recall listening to one philosopher make a similar point that as humans over the years, as we've evolved this uh, ability to uh, transmit information over via story, how we have uh, tried to understand one another through story, that we have become very well suited to hear and receive story. But the problem is that in listening and hearing story, we are not well um, suited to discern truth from falsity in the midst of that story. So for this reason, the philosopher argued that we should not use stories to convey beliefs. Instead, it would be more efficient, it'd be better suited if we uh, were to just give facts and propositions for truth-telling. The rug is red, the cat is on the rug, the cat is on the red rug, something like that. Perhaps then we should throw out storytelling altogether. Perhaps we should dispense with narrative. 
If stories predispose us to believe false things, perhaps there is no utility in them and we should do away with them. But what if there is a benefit to storytelling? What if there is some positive outcome? Does the possibility of believing a half-truth or a slant truth or a total outright lie make sense if it helps keep us safe? Or if it produces happiness or joy or confidence? In the novel Wellness, the character Elizabeth works at a research lab called the Institute for Placebo Studies, or otherwise known as Wellness. And the purported purpose of this lab is to test claims made by specious health-related products to see if the products achieved results any better than placebo. So basically take health fads, test them against sugar pills and various other placebos, and see if the outcomes are comparable or better than what the health fads claim. In order to generate some statistically significant results, it's necessary not simply to give the patients some placebo, but to create a story, a story that allows the patient to believe that they are receiving some sort of genuine treatment. The story extends not simply to fanciful pills or believable dietary supplements, but requires the creation of a scientific explanation of the efficacy and the background of a treatment. For one woman experiencing difficulty with anger with her husband for his infidelity, she is given a bottle with some pills labeled dopamine receptor polymorphism neurotransmitter number nine. And then Elizabeth gave the long and involved ex explanation that she gave all her clients who were undergoing this very treatment, that their feelings of restlessness and tedium and loneliness and general marital blah, those urges toward anything at all different and exotic, that impatience and resentment that they felt towards stasis and wedded monotony might not reflect any real objective problem in their marriage. It might, in fact, it was possible that all these feelings could be explained by a biochemical feedback loop created eons ago within the most nomadic pockets of hunter-gatherer humans. Those ancestors who migrated the farthest, or whose lives were most precarious, evolution had over the ages imprinted their very genetic code with this exactly this compulsion, a suspicion of sameness. Those Stone Age humans who 60,000 years ago wandered away from the African breadbasket, walked through the Fertile Crescent, transversed the Indian subcontinent, traveled the distance of Asia on foot, crossed the land bridge to Ascra, Alaska, who kept walking south, tracking game, avoiding the ice, following the seasons, scrounging, starving, moving on, always moving on, for these tribes staying in one place for too long was literally a death sentence, and so nature selected for people apt to be on the move, people unafraid of new situations, people who craved and needed new situations. The evidence is right there in our DNA, in the 11th chromosome, in the DRD4 gene, a dopamine receptor whose genetic sequence in most humans repeated either two or four or seven times in this last, muta this last mutation, which was known as the 7R poly polymorphism, being strongly associated with novelty-seeking, risk-taking, openness to new experiences, stimulation craving, even impatience, infidelity, promiscuity, impulsiveness, a strong desire to leave all things under the umbrella of what may be called exploratory behavior. And the 7R variant was seen most often in people whose ancestors were the most nomadic, who walked the greatest distances, who traveled the farthest away from home, who walked the greatest distances, and then bequeathed this genetic legacy to those who came later, creating people whose very biology pushed them towards something, anything new. In other words, Elizabeth told her patients it was possible that hypoactive marital attachment disorder did not reflect an actual problem within their marriage. It might just be that they were experiencing the cognitive dissonance of living a settled life with a migratory brain. Armed with these pills and this story, could there be any doubt in the efficacy of this treatment? 
What does it matter if it is only placebo, if the story is all a fiction, if it does in fact produce greater marital intimacy, if it serves as a medical love potion? Is the proper role of narrative to serve as a useful fiction to produce some beneficial outcome? The grandiose, the more grandiose the narrative, the greater the results. We can keep the story going so long as it produces positive outcomes, and we dispense with the story if it's no longer efficacious, if it no longer helps us be happy or successful or in love or spiritual. Is that how we are best to understand story and the role it ought to play in our lives? God created us to hear and believe stories and narratives. Is that how we should use them? The mathematician and physicist Blaise Pascal contended that the best way to convince someone of the Christian faith is first to show them its attractiveness, to tell a story so remarkable, so gorgeous, so enrapturing that everyone will wish it to be true, and then to show It is true. John's approach in this epistle that we've been studying is quite similar, I think. In chapter 1, verse 1, John wrote, We are writing these things that our joy, your joy, my joy, may be complete. What things was he writing? He was writing the story of his own life, of how he was with Jesus, how he lived with Jesus, saw and believed and proclaimed the life of the man who is God, who came to dwell with man and die for man, that man may be great right with God. It's a pretty spectacular story. What happens if you believe it? What does John say happens if you believe it? If you believe it, You have reconciliation and fellowship with God, the creator of the universe, the king of the universe, being made into a son or a daughter of God, hope of a day when we will be made like Christ, the one in whom all the glory of God shines, hope of eternal life. This is a story to wish were true. And it is true. And you can know it is true. And that's why John is writing these things. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. In spite of all the contrary narratives, in spite of all the wayward teachings, in spite of all the reasons to doubt the wondrous story, John is adamant that there is certainty to be had, knowledge of the truth, a story that is not only wondrous, but is also true. Throughout this letter, John has written about several tests, if you will, mechanisms by which we can be assured of our faith, that our salvation is in fact true. And in verses one through five here in chapter five, John encapsulates and distills those tests into three um, succinct tests, the test of belief, of love, and of obedience. First, belief. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. What does it mean to believe that Jesus is the Christ? As we've discussed in these past weeks, the antithesis, the the teachers who had left the church that John had established and um, had gone away were teaching something contrary. And they were teaching something that we might call the precursor to Gnosticism. This idea that flesh is evil, that matter is insignificant, unimportant, and that at best, Jesus was just a man. A man who maybe for a time God descended and embodied him for a time, but certainly only a man because only a man would die on a cross. Because God could not, would not allow himself to be murdered upon a cross as a common criminal. 
But if Jesus was the Christ, is the Christ, then he is the one who was born as a man, but also is fully God. He is the one who lived a sinful a sinless, impervious life. He is the God who was willingly led, like a lamb, willingly led like a lamb to the slaughter. He is the one who is the fulfillment of our long expectations for a Messiah. To believe that Jesus is the Christ is to hope from him everything that has been promised about the Messiah. Brothers and sisters, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? If so, this is the beginning of knowing that you have eternal life. Second, love. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, then you have been born of God. You are a son or daughter of God. Do you find yourself delighting in our Heavenly Father, rejoicing in the awesome works of his hands? Thrilled by the subversive, upside-down way he orchestrates the events of his world to his design, glorying in the glory of his majesty, relishing the sublime beauty of his redemption already at work, at bringing you to him while you were yet a sinner, at even now creating beautiful things in dark and desperate places, at creating hope where there seems only despair. Do you love our Father in heaven? If he is our Father your father, my father, then we are his family. We are made brothers and sisters in Christ. What is normal for a human family should be normal for our spiritual family. Do you love the children of God? By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God. The natural outflow, the things that pours out of our love for God in his adoption and reconciliation of us is love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Love for one another. Love for our spiritual family members. And in our love for the family of God, we are carrying out the commands of God and loving God. It's a virtuous cycle. Brothers and sisters, do you love God? Do you love the children of God? Third, obedience. We know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. One of the primary ways in which we love God is by doing what he requires of us, what he has commanded us. He has given us the ways in which we ought to order our loves and our lives. Do you obey his commandments? Are they tedious, toilsome, and burdensome? Or are they life-giving and joyous to follow? Jesus called out the persnickety and tedious regulations of the scribes and Pharisees as heavy burdens, hard to bear. But the yoke of Jesus is easy and his burden is light. John writes God's commandments are not burdensome. Verse 3. God's commands, if we are his children, are meant to safeguard, to protect, to cause us to flourish. They are meant to direct us in the paths of joy everlasting. God's commandments are good for those who love him. So brothers and sisters, my family members, do you Keep God's commandments. These three, belief, love, and obedience, are tests of assurance. They are given to us by John as a way that we can assess whether we can know that we are saved, that we have eternal salvation. Now, as you think about those three, I think it's really important for us to make a couple 
important notes. First, the standard of each of these is not perfection. John has already made it abundantly clear in his letter that those who pretend that sinlessness is possible this side of death are fooling themselves. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But rather we long for the day of Jesus' return for when he appears we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is in all his glory, in all his majesty. If you look inside yourself and you compare yourselves to these tests and you find yourselves wanting, the first thing is not to compare yourself against perfection, but rather to assess yourself on the continued and marked improvement in each of these, comparing today to yesterday, January to February, this year to last year, this decade to last decade. Those who are in Christ, those who are made children of God, cannot help but grow in Christ's likeness. John says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep sinning because he has been born of God. There is this upward spiral of sinlessness. We will never achieve total sinlessness, but there ought to always be this cycle of getting rid of excoriating the sinfulness in our lives. When we are in Christ, we cannot help but grow in sinlessness. And as a child of God, there will be a pattern of consistent, persistent growth in our faith, in our love, and our obedience. Now the second thing is, these are not a burden on you. These tests are not a burden. And if you are, I need you to hear this. These are not the measure of your salvation. This is not the means of salvation. You don't earn your salvation by being obedient. You don't become saved by loving God and loving his church. These are the marks of one who is saved, one who is made in Christ. If you find that you hate the things of God, that you cannot bear his commands, that you do not believe that Jesus is the Christ, the call is not to simply try to make these things happen, to take these tests um, as the object of the faith, to simply believe things, to fake it until you make it. Rather, these tests are meant to be a test, uh, a marker, if you will, of our Christian life. The object of our faith is Christ himself. The one in whom and on whom we believe is Christ alone. The thing upon which our faith rests is Christ. The person upon whom our salvation is secured is Christ. If you find that you don't meet the test, the call is simple. Believe in Jesus, the Christ. Believe that he came to save you and me from our sins by living the life we should have lived and dying the death we should have died, defeating death that we might become the children of God now, as John says. Christ is the object of our faith. It is him in whom we trust and believe. So in turn, so turn, all of you, and believe wholeheartedly in Jesus, one who saves What comes of this faith? 
two things quickly. Uh, first, in verse one, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. The one who believes has been enabled to believe by a transformation in your very being. There has been an ontological transformation, a foundational transformation. You have been made into a child of God. Remember that the language that John uses here is not merely of adoption as Paul uses, but rather the languages of our very biology. We have been born. There is new birth, new life. We have been reborn as the very children of God. Our very biology is transformed and that we are the children of God. The very substance of our being is transformed. This is one who has been born of God. Second, what comes of this faith? Verse four, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Our faith enables us to overcome the world. The world, as John uses it here and in this epistle, refers not to people and persons, but to the general pervading influence of sin in this world. The influence of sin in everything and everyone. Newness in Christ enables us to resist the temptation of sin. It enables us to do that which is good, that which is right, that which is pleasing to God, glorifying to God, loving of God, obedient of God. Our faith in Christ has allowed us to overcome the world. So we have now these three tests as John's executive summary of much of what he has already been written. These tests as a basis by which we can know that we have eternal life. That's not all, far from it. John has saved the most glorious testimony to our eternal salvation for the end. John has told a beautiful story, a fantastic story, a story so grand and so vivid that we could only wish it were true. Then John wrote to give us the beginning of the confirmation that this is in fact a true story. He gave us these tests by which we can subjectively assess the veracity of our own salvation. We can test um, if our story coheres with this story. We can see whether or not the story of the gospel lines up with our story. But now, John gives us the testimony. Not John's testimony. Not some mere mortal's testimony, but the testimony of the water, the blood, and the spirit. The story of God, the gospel that we read in our scriptures is attested to by the very spirit of God that dwells within each person who is made a child of God. God himself lives in us that we might know, that we might have certainty that this is a fantastically true story. Believe, my friends, believe the story for it is true. But I'm getting ahead of myself. John writes, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. The water and the blood? Language seems a bit cryptic. Maybe not out of place in our Bible, but I'd like for you to See Charlie go to walking around UNM telling friends that the water and the blood confirm my testimony, brother. The water and the blood. Uh, I think we can try to decipher it by recontextualizing it in its historical context. If Jesus were only a man, like those who left the church were teaching, 
then it would make sense that Jesus would have been baptized in water, perhaps even by someone like John the Baptist. The baptism is for all, after all. I baptize you with water for repentance, says John the Baptist. And indeed, Jesus the Christ was baptized. And the Baptist testifies that I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water sent to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. Jesus came by water through baptism, for he is a man, and all men need baptism. Jesus lived the life that we should have lived. However, it is not water alone. He did not come only by water, but he also came by blood. Now certainly John has in mind Jesus' death on the cross as he writes the testimony of these, the water and the blood. But the emphasis on the blood, on the dying of Christ, is intended to specifically refute that Gnostic heresy that said it was only a man that died on the cross. But rather... Jesus was fully man and fully God. Fully man who came in water and fully God who died in blood. God put himself on that cross that he might die the death that we ought to die as the penalty for our sin. This is our God whose ministry is bounded by the water and by the blood. This is our Jesus, the one who is a sinless man. This is our Jesus who is the Christ, the Messiah, the hoped one of Israel, the redeemer of mankind, this is our Christ, the God who nails himself to the cross to bear the wrath of our sin. This is Jesus Christ, one who came by water and by blood. But there are three that testify, the water, the blood, and the spirit. The Holy Spirit who descended on Jesus at his baptism like a dove. The Spirit, the helper who Jesus sent, you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. The Spirit who testifies to Jesus as the Christ. But when the helper comes, whom I, Jesus, will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, Jesus. This spirit who is the very embodiment of truth. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Holy Trinity, God poured out upon us. The Holy Spirit confirms the witness of Jesus' life and death of the water and the blood. And these three agree. The water, the blood, and the spirit. Why should we care? Why does that matter? What's the significance of Jesus is the Christ, that some guy with a name as common at that time as Stephen Bob is now supposedly fulfilled the prophecies of some ancient nation. Why should we believe a story, some story, some concocted story about things happening eons ago, about a Jesus that lived, that died 2,000 years ago? Because this is the testimony. This is the story that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. As John writes, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. At the end of the Gospel of John, at the end of John's story about the life and death of Jesus, John writes, these things are written so that you may believe, in the, in, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What's the consequence 
of this story? Life. Ending with an alliteration in honor of Matt. I don't know if he made it here today. Got three, three C's. The consequence, the conviction, and the content. So what is the consequence of this story, of this gospel? Life. Life in Christ. Eternal life in eternal fellowship with our perfect heavenly Father. God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. This is a story worth believing because it is life. Football is life. The gospel is life. Consequences, life, the conviction of this story. What convinces you of it? The Spirit. God himself, the Holy Spirit, who is truth, testifies to this story, affirms this story, provides assurance that this story is true. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. This is a story that we can believe because it is true and God himself confirms it for us. The consequence of this gospel is life. The conviction of this gospel is the Spirit himself. So what then is the content of the story? It's a story that we've alluded to today. Perhaps it's a story that you're maybe hearing for the first time, or it's an old, old story as we sung. A story that you've heard for years and years. When we baptize a child, we say, this is your story. This is the story of God who came to you to save you from your sins. And this is the story that we are going to tell to you and we want you to hear it over and over and over again. When you go to children's church and when you are in the nursery and when you are in the sanctuary, we will tell you this story so that one day, hopefully, you will make that story your own. We tell this story over and over and over again because it is worth repeating. It's a story that we tell every single Sunday in the way that we organize our service. <laughs> Whippo the other day was, uh, we were texting about uh, liturgy and he wanted to emphasize, that he just wrote this brilliant text that was so theologically rip, rich about how every single Sunday, how he chooses the songs and how the flow of the liturgy, it's all meant to tell the story of the creation and the fall and, and, uh, and Jesus' coming and the sacrifice and our redemption and the consummation and how the entire Sunday service is meant to tell this story, how the way that we do our call to worship, how Arlen called us and brought us into this story and said, this is the story that we are telling yet again today. This is a story that you will hear and that we hope that you will make it your own. We tell this story time and time again because it is never old. It is life. It bears repeating. It's the story that we will continue to tell because in this story is life. So my friends, I want to end with once again telling the story of God who came to bring us eternal life. Listen to the words written by the Apostle John who lived and breathed and saw Jesus the Christ. Let these words wash over you. Let the words fill you with joy and comfort. Hear the words. Believe the words. Make the story your own. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. 
and the word was God. He was in the beginning. All things that were made through him and without him was not anything that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this is he of whom I said he comes after me, ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, but he has made him known. Let's pray. God, this story is fantastic. Work in our hearts, in our imaginations to remind us of the beauty of it when it all seems so simple, too close, too hard to see the contours of it. God, pull back, draw it away from our eyes that we might see the grandeur of this story, the magnificence of this story, that we might once again revel in the awesomeness of this story and wish that it were true. And as we sit awestruck of this story, that me, a wretched sinner, could be made right with you, God, testify to it. Testify to the truth of it in each of our hearts. Remind us of the truth of it when we go out from here, when we go and eat lunches, when we go and do the simple things. Remind us of this great story that is made our own by just believing that you are the Christ. Make this story our own today. It's in your name we pray these things. Amen.